We continue, friends, on a Sunday night, our studies in prayer. And we come in this third study to what I've called gaining the position. Gaining the position. We reread, as we did last week, from Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, the first 13 verses. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say unto you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of God. May God add a blessing to his word. We are exploring tonight what I would consider to be the heart of intercessory prayer. The heart of intercessory prayer. Throughout my ministry, I have been intrigued by the fact that I have seen scores of Christian wives Often the most faithful workers in the church whose husbands were lost. But I can count on one hand the number of Christian husbands whose wives were lost. A faithful Christian woman with an unsaved husband, it seems, is routine. A Christian husband with an unsaved wife paradoxically, is rare. Perhaps that's part of the reason for 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter giving apostolic advice to Christian wives on winning their lost husbands. But no similar admonition for Christian husbands with lost wives. Anyhow, 
Here is Peter's counsel to wives who want to win their husbands to Christ. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Wives, he says. In the same way, be submissive to your husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. A wife may win her lost husband to Christ, it seems, without saying a word to him about it. Let's face it, some individuals can be reached by only one person and in only one way. Here, it is the wife. And it is by her life that her husband is saved. Not noticed by his being dragged to church. Not noticed by him being hounded by the local pastor. Not noticed by him being preached to by his wife. Rather, he sees... Watches attentively is the meaning there in the original Greek language. He watches attentively the purity and the reverence of her life and is saved. Peter continues, your beauty, verses 3 through 4, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Note, Peter is not saying here that the wife should not braid her hair, that she should not wear jewelry or fine clothes. There's nothing wrong with these things per se. But they will not, suggests Peter, win the husband to Christ. Instead, he says, instead, It should be that your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now I know what you're all sat there thinking. What has all this got to do with intercessory prayer? Well, as I understand the text and the context, the wife wins her husband not by her petition only, but also by her position. Not by her petition only, but by her position. The position of submissiveness. For instance, the position of purity and reverence and by the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. When she gains this position, there's a sense in which her entire life becomes an act of intercession. When she cooks his favorite meal, for instance... It is intercession. When she listens to his boring stories about the fish that got away. It's intercession. 
When she endures with grace the post-season football games. <laughs> it's intercession. When, with a Christ-like spirit, she accepts even his careless treatment of her. It's intercession. Every beat of her heart is intercession. Every drop of blood that flows through her veins is petition. Every tear that falls from her eyes because of his indifference is a prayer lifted to God. This brings us to what I believe is the real key to true intercession. Brothers, sisters, intercession is more than prayer. Prayer is a form, an expression of intercession, but it is not intercession alone. Intercession is not petition. Intercession is position. Intercession is not something we do, it is something we are. It is not an Exercise we engage in from time to time or week to week. Rather, intercession, friends, is a life that we live. In Ezekiel chapter 22, we read in verse 30 that God looked for a man, equally a woman, among them who would build up the wall and stand before him in the gap on behalf of the land. Here, God does not necessarily say he's looking for someone to pray, although, of course, prayer would certainly be a part of it. No, he is seeking for a person who will assume a certain position. Stand in the gap. He is seeking a person who will live a certain life. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 5 verse 1, describes a similar search. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, he says, and look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Intercession is gaining a position and then praying from the position that is gained. Intercession, therefore, is positional praying. In the case of Christ, we read together from Isaiah chapter 53, it is said that He, Christ, made intercession for the transgressors. Fascinating. He made intercession For the transgressors. Isaiah does not mean that Christ only prayed for the transgressors. Though he did of course. But Christ lived for them. And more. He died for them. Christ's entire life. His entire ministry. His humiliation. His agony. It was all dear friends. Intercession. 
for the transgressors. If then intercession is a position we live in and pray from, how is that position gained? Three thoughts. Gosh, that was a long introduction, wasn't it? I'm not learning very well, am I? My homiletics lectures have long since gone by. I I try to look for them, you know, my notes from my days of studying homiletics at Bible college. I can't find them anywhere. There we are. That's my excuse. Three quick thoughts. How do we, how do we gain the position? If intercession is the position from which we need to pray. Firstly, gaining the position stage one, I call it identification. Let's remind ourselves from last week's study of the triangle of prayer in Luke chapter 11. The intercessor in our story was called upon to make several sacrifices. He, remember, forfeited his sleep and his rest to intercede. He risked his friendship to intercede, to feed this stranger, this friend on a journey. The whole affair was an inconvenience to him. Yet the key sacrifice was this, uh, as I understand it. He identified himself with the traveller and with the traveller's need. This man was not hungry. He didn't need bread himself. But he had a traveller, a guest, a friend who had come his way who was hungry. And so the intercessor identified himself. Pleading for bread, not for himself. But for his guest. Some might think to themselves, well, if the guest wants it bad enough, let him do his own begging. But his host acted as though he were the hungry one. He took his guest's place. That, my friends, is the essence of intercession. You see, to intercede, we identify ourselves with the needs of others. It's true to say, the hurting listen for a cry like their own. A cry that tells them they are not alone. That cry is our prayer. And it will cost us Something. We are, of course, throughout Scripture exhorted to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Equally here, when God set out to redeem mankind, what did God the Father do? Well, He identified Himself with humankind by becoming a man. And walking where men walked. God did not come to us as an invisible or inaccessible or unapproachable or unknowable deity. He came to us as a man. With a man's feelings. With man's temptations encroaching upon him. With a man's limitations. He came so 
so close. He identified with me. John said in John 1 John 1 1, our hands have handled the very word of life. Fascinating scripture. Our hands have handled, the word handled there is usually used in classical Greek of a blind man's groping. It's endeavoring to emphasize the realness, the reality of this handling. It reminds us of the wonder of Christ's identification with us. Jesus' baptism. There's a debate. Why did Jesus have to get baptized? Well, theologically, of course, there's a sense in which he didn't. The baptism of John was a baptism of confession, a baptism of repentance. That's why, remember, none of the Pharisees dare line up to be baptized by John. For if they did, it would have been an admission of guilt, an admission of sin. When Jesus asked John to baptize him, he theologically did not need to be baptized a baptism of repentance, for he was a sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So why? Why did he get baptized by John? Well, it was to identify himself with you and I. How wonderful. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God who knew no sin, who did not need to submit himself to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He identified himself by going through the waters for my sin and yours. And in so doing, he was interceding for me. Little Doug Atherton. And for you. Jesus has a name for every need of man, doesn't he? To the hungry, Jesus is the bread of life. Why? Because he identifies with the hungry. To the thirsty, he is the fountain of living water. Why? Because he identifies with the thirsty. To the sick, he is the balm of Gilead. To the dying, he is the resurrection and the life. To the lonely, he is the one who sticks closer than any brother. To the outcast, he is the friend of sinners. And the culmination of this identification, the crescendo of our Lord's identification with man, was reached, of course, at the cross. Where in Isaiah 53, 12, we read that he was numbered with the transgressors. The Apostle Paul affords us a glimpse into the mystery of identification in Romans chapter 9, 1 through 3. Perhaps when you get home, you can study it yourself. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying, he says, my conscience confirms in the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. Boy, there's identification for you. He's saying, I wish that I might be cut off. 
for the sake of Israel. Such was his heart's desire to be identified with his people. Oh, wow. God give me a church full of people like that. So keen to be identified with the lost of Trachlan. That we would be prepared to be cut off for their sake. That's intercession. Little wonder then that in the first verse of the next chapter of Romans chapter 10. Paul declares, brothers, sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Friends, the preeminent requirement for intercession is the willingness to identify with the one in need. The readiness to take his or her burden. Even if that burden, that need, is salvation. It is in the purest sense laying down our lives. For our brethren. Gaining the position. Intercession. Secondly. Gaining the position stage to sacrifice. To intercede will demand identification. It will demand sacrifice. The friend at midnight. He not only identified himself with the need of the guest. Acting as if he were the hungry one. But he also sacrificed to meet that need. He sacrificed, for instance, physical comfort. And the conveniences of the night. To go into the darkness of the night to seek bread. Intercession, friends, is a ministry of sacrifice. As the intercessor for transgressors, Jesus was the answer to his own prayer. I find that fascinating, don't you? What did he pray in Luke 23, 34 from the cross? What did he pray? He prayed for his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And yet, fascinatingly, the only basis upon which the Father could answer the prayer of the Son and forgive them was that the very act of crucifixion was taking place. For without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus, in his prayer... Had to sacrifice his life for his own prayer to be answered. Oh, are we there? Are we there? In our praying, in our intercession, are we content to sacrifice our life? That that prayer might be answered. That puts a different spin on prayer, doesn't it? You might sit there and say, well, I'm not sure if I signed up for that. (laughs) Didn't you? 
Didn't you? Really? If you're in Christ, then you did sign up for that. For Christ said, if anyone would come after me, he must, she must deny himself. Salvation, it begins with self-sacrifice. Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Salvation begins with sacrifice. And we are saved, of course, that we might serve. And what is the highest order of Christian service? Prayer and intercession. Oh yes. Highest order of Christian service, this side of glory, is prayer and intercession. And just as we had to sacrifice ourselves to, to be saved, so we have to sacrifice ourselves to intercede. Don't, friends, ask God to do something unless you are willing for Him to do it through you. I've been there. I sang the songs when I was a, uh, a young Christian in Liverpool. Lord, will you send missionaries to the, to the field, Lord? That was my prayer. Send the missionaries, Lord. Send the, 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 the reapers out into the harvest fields, Lord. <laughs> and the Lord tapped me on the shoulder. Yes, my son. I'll do that if you go. Oh, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking, Lord, if you'd send that one across the way there, or, or that Christian, or, oh, she's super spiritual. Send that, dear sister. No, he says, no, no, you prayed. Send forth the reapers into the harvest fields. Be the answer to your own prayer. Intercession, my friends, is identification. It's only as we genuinely identify ourselves with those for whom we intercede that we can intercede. Because it's not then just a mere uh, situation of kind of uh, understanding. We can empathize, not just sympathize. And it's sacrifice. And finally and quickly, gaining the position stage three. It's warm in here. Are you warm? Authority. Finally, we can observe that from the host's identification and sacrifice came authority to obtain all he needed from his reluctant friend. Read in 11, Luke 11 verse 8. He, the friend, will get up, he will rise up and give him as much as he needs. The identification, the sacrifice culminated in him Positionally gaining authority. Let's pause here and measure our progress. Here is the pattern of intercession. Identification with the needs of others. Sacrifice to meet those needs. Authority to obtain what is needed. In the Old Testament we read how Moses identified himself with his people. Remember that prayer in Exodus 32, 32. He prayed, but now please forgive their sin. But if not God, he says, blot me out of the book you have written. Whew, there's identification for you. Forgive their sin. If not, blot me out. 
And he sacrificed for the same people, praying and fasting for 40 days on the mountain. And friends, because of that identification, because of that sacrifice, he certainly gained authority with God in prayer. Did he not? For although God did discipline his people with plagues, he did not consume his people or cast them away forever. In the New Testament, we read how Jesus identified himself with mankind by taking on the form of a servant. He sacrificed himself for mankind by taking our sins in his own body on the tree. And therefore, because of his identification, because of his sacrifice, with all authority in heaven and on earth, he loosed man from sin. He stripped Satan of his armor. He tore the sting out of death. And he flung open the gates of glory. Now there's authority. Jesus, Moses, Paul, brothers, sisters, we follow in their footsteps. Why? Well, of course, for the servant is not above his master. Make no mistake about this, dear friends. Prevailing intercession will cost. The problem with the Christian church here in the free West in these early years of the 21st century is we're not prepared to count that cost. It'll cost sleepless nights, for instance. I was chatting to one of our number on Tuesday night and he was sharing with me how the Lord woke him, woke him in the night to intercede. That's what happens to intercessors, you see. It'll cost you sleep. It'll cost you unseen tears. It'll cost the sacrifice of personal desires and personal convenience. And whatever else is necessary to fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. The wonderful verse in Isaiah 66 verse 8. No sooner is Zion in labor that she gives birth to her children. Nature itself teaches us friends that there can be no life without travail. True. I know you see. Not because I'm a a woman who's given birth but I've been there. Well, I sat and watched it. It seemed to me that my wife was in considerable travail as she gave birth to uh, my two daughters. Considerable travail. My friends, do you want to see the spiritual birth of men and women, boys and girls, in Trashland and Pontypridd? At little cost. You will be called To travail. It'll hurt. It'll be painful. It'll be demanding. But it's necessary. It's necessary. Do you remember Christ at Gethsemane? Oh. The cost. The cost. Great sweat drops of blood. Were poured from my Savior's brow. As he battled with the elements of darkness that tempted him to walk away. Because he could have. Oh yeah. Ah, there were, there was a Roman legion en route. 
matter not. He could have walked away. But he didn't. He travailed. He travailed of body, soul and mind. For my salvation. If you want to see the salvation of Trachla. you want to see the salvation of Pontypridd. Of South Wales. It'll cost. You will have to travail. Body. Soul. And mind. I believe when we, in order to stand in the gap for another, take to ourselves death. Death to advantage and ambition, perhaps. Death to consideration and comfort and personal convenience, perhaps. Then and only then do we have the right to expect a harvest. The question is, Brothers and sisters of Coipenmine Community Church, are we willing to assume that position? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these searching scriptures. A part of us, Lord, would perhaps prefer to dodge them. Do the proverbial spiritual sidestep. Explain the way perhaps theologically or, or otherwise. But Jesus, your Holy Spirit, he is speaking. Help us to count the cost. We've counted it to be saved. Might we count it to serve? And assume that position that demands the answers to prayer for thy kingdom's sake. Amen.